Hello, this is Pastor Ariel, and welcome to Devotional. It is my prayer before every episode that this podcast will be a blessing for you. Please remember to subscribe to Devotional on iTunes or whatever platform you're listening in. This way, you will be notified every time a new episode is published. And don't forget to scroll down on the show's description and click on the links for all the free resources to get the best experience out of this podcast. Also, please remember to share with your friends and loved ones so they too can be blessed with this resource. Lastly, please consider becoming a supporter of this podcast. It would be much appreciated. And now, here's today's episode. Welcome once again to Devotional. This is Pastor Ariel. We are studying lesson number eight this week entitled Satan, a Defeated Enemy, and this is for February 16th through the 22nd. Man, I miss being behind the microphone and I'm really happy that I get an opportunity to do it again this week. And you will see that I have tweaked a couple of things so that it, I can become more consistent. And you'll see some of these changes in this week's episode. Uh, this week, we can um, glean three major lessons. And before we dive into them, I want to just let you know that I've created a Facebook page uh, called Devotional Podcast. And the reason I created it is, number one, I, I will post whenever these episodes are out and have been published. I will um, put those there in that Facebook page. And so if you like it, uh, you'll also be notified just one more way that you can get notified when the episodes go out. Plus, you can let me know how these are um, blessings you, how these are impacting you, if they're encouraging. Uh, also, some feedback. You know, I would love to hear things that are working, that I'm doing, that are a blessing for you, or resources that I can provide for you, or other things that I could do or implement into these podcasts that will be a blessing for you. So I hope you will take some time to interact and also if these have been a blessing for you, could you please rate it? Because it helps me so that other people can find these podcasts and make use of these resources as well. So I would just appreciate if you would just take a few minutes to do that. Um, it will make a difference. So we're looking at Satan at Defeated Enemy. And in this lesson, I personally gleaned three major lessons. And the first one is that Satan, he is a defeated foe, but he has not yet been destroyed. The lesson... Uh, presents that uh, loud and clear. He is a defeated foe. We don't need to fear him, yet he has not yet been destroyed. In Revelation 12, 12, 12, we read the following, For this reason, rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them, because Satan has been defeated. Woe to the earth, though, <laughs> that's where we're at, and the sea, because the devil has come down to you having great wrath, knowing that he has only a short time. We know he's defeated, he knows he's defeated, but he has not yet been destroyed. And because of that, he has great wrath. He knows he will be destroyed. And because of that, he knows that his time is limited, is actually short. Which makes me think of me as a Christian. It makes me think of me as a Seventh-day Adventist. I think I may have mentioned this to you in a previous podcast. I was dedicated in Argentina. And the pastor that dedicated me told my parents, my parents, of course, told me this. <laughs> I'm not aware of this. But later on, my parents told me that on the day that I was dedicated, this pastor said, 
before Ariel turns 15, Jesus will come. Look around you. Look at the prophetic signs around us. Certainly, Jesus is at the door. And my parents were very much impacted by that. And they told me that. And so when I turned, you know, in my teens, as a child, I was like, amen, I'm so happy Jesus will come before I'm 15. Somehow that stuck as a prophetic <laughs> declaration, which obviously did not happen, which can begin to affect us into thinking we have a lot of time. The mission can wait. We have a lot of time. My decisions that I need to make for the Lord can wait. I have a lot of time. I mean, I'm 45. That's a long time past 15 years old. So Satan lives daily, moment by moment, with this conviction that he has short, a short time. And that's what motivates him to make every second of the day count. He is he's exercising every possible mental capacity, all of his talents, all of his skills, to take as many people down because he has, he has this knowledge. I have a short time. And me as a Christian, I need to... Uh, become aware that I don't have all the time in the world. We don't have all the time in the world. We, we have today, and that's it. You know, this idea of he have, uh, coming down with great wrath, knowing he's defeated, therefore he has a short time, made me think of history. Not that far away history either. The history of the Nazi, the, the Nazi machine in, in Europe trying to take world dominance. And it made me think of when they were defeated. When the Allied forces gathered together the resources and we overcame uh, the Nazi regime. And when, when they found out that they were defeated, some of the things that happened. Um, namely, there was a Lutheran pastor named Dietrich Bonhoeffer who had been captured uh, in, in his plots to try to destroy Hitler. Out of all things, right? He gets caught uh, red-handed trying to kill the Fuhrer. And um, when the Nazis find out that they're defeated, they kill him. We will get caught and we will die, but we're taking you down with us. You will not walk away from this. And that's the imagery that comes to mind of Satan. He knows he has been defeated. He will be destroyed, but he has not yet been destroyed. So in the meantime, he is doing his utmost to drag as many people down with him as possible. That includes you and me. Um, so how are we to live? Right, I'm no, I'm not, I'm way past 15 years old. Jesus has not yet come, and yet we we believe he comes, but we are in this wait, time of waiting, time of patient, uh, patiently waiting. Second uh, Peter chapter three, verses three to five is some of the verses that I want to look at as we look at these lessons. And the first one, of course, is Satan is defeated, but has not yet been destroyed. Second Peter, chapter three, verses three to five says this. I'm reading from the New, New American Standard. Knowing this first, that in the last days, mockers, scoffers, says the New King James, uh, mockers will come with their mocking, showing after, uh, following after their own lust, and saying, Where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, everything continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. For when they maintain this, Peter now speaking, he, they end the quote. Peter then says, For when they, these mockers, these scoffers, when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and by water. And he goes into a different argument. All I'm focusing on is when they maintain this, it escapes their notice. The New King James it says it a bit more forcefully. It says they, they willfully forget. You know, I, I'm not, I don't forget things intentionally. 
Um, and when I forget things, it bothers me. I wish I could remember this person's name. I wish I could remember what I said to that person. It bothers me that I can't recall things. And yet these individuals are willfully forgetting that God created. And in doing so, they are adopting an attitude that, where is this promise? My, my parents told me that he was going to come before I was 15. He's still not here. We have time. We have time. The danger of this attitude of, of mocking, of scoffing at the idea that Jesus is coming again fills you with the deep conviction that you have all the time in the world. And Satan would love Christians to believe that they have all the time in the world, all the while he knows, he is convinced, he has a short time. I'm going to read verse 9. Um, verse, verse 8 and 9 says, actually, But do not let, let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years like one day. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. So this idea of, you know, don't forget, don't become a willful, forgetting Christian. Don't let these, uh, this reality escape your notice. Um, Paul says um, you actually need to remember. Remember these three things. Number one, from these verses from Peter, Peter is telling us, don't forget these three things. Number one, God is patient and you are not. God is patient and I am not. We are not patient but God is. And his patience is not like yours and mine. We, we typically struggle with patience because we equate patience with inactivity. We equate patience with just being static and stagnant. We can't go anywhere. Why? Because we're waiting for so-and-so. Like when you go to a restaurant and the one friend hasn't shown up yet and you're, the, the waitress has come by or waiter has come by you know, four times already. Is everybody ready to order? We all are starving, but so-and-so has not gotten here yet. We can do nothing. That's not the kind of patience that God is exhibiting. Um, God is exhibiting a patience of activity, intense activity, because Peter says he wants everyone to come to repentance. We need to learn how to exhibit, how to appropriate, how to exercise that patience in us. And it takes time. You know, it's actually one of the fruits of the Spirit. You and I cannot make ourselves more patient by simply trying harder. The fruits of the Spirit take place by yielding more, by humbling myself more, by accepting the lessons by which God tries to seek me, to teach me to uh, become more patient, allow this uh, fruit to grow and mature inside of me. It is the Holy Spirit that causes patience to flourish. God's kind of patience, not the kind of patience that says, well, you know, indifference. You know, I'll just, I'll just wait, um, you know, that th th develops apathy. No, those are not the components of godly patience, spirit-grown patience. This, the fruit of the Spirit is a patient that is identical to the patience of Jesus, identical to the patience of God. And that is an important uh, component of Christians, especially Christians longing for the second coming of Christ. I never made this, this connection until I, it dawned on me. Revelation 14, 12 says, Here is the patience of the saints. Here is the patience. You know, God is patient, and He wants me to learn to be patient, but not patience in idleness, but patience in earnest activity. Um, this patient endurance produced by the Holy Spirit enables me to realize the other two things that we can glean from Peter's statements here in this lesson that allows us to not forget, to willfully ignore these realities. 
Satan knows he has but a short time and I don't need to live in emergency mode. I don't need to live in panic mode. I need to live in godly patience mode in which I wait because God waits and I wait in earnest activity. Now, the, the, two, the second lesson that we can glean from this passage in Peter is that his, his relationship to time is different from ours. Peter says that, you know, one day to the Lord is a thousand years and a thousand years is like a day. He, he, the way he looks at time is very different from ours, which means that God is not slow in keeping his promise. He desires all to come to repentance. He relates to time not to see, you know, like, like with a stopwatch, how fast can he go? How fast can he move? When God is looking at time, he's looking at how many people he can save, how many people he can intervene, how he can best impact people's lives for salvation. That is how God relates to time, and he's patient. He was patient with Abraham, was he not? He was patient with Jacob, was he not? Which leads us to the third and final point. How can you and I live cognizant that we don't have all the time in the world and that today we need to exhibit patience? Because if you're not patient, you'll get restless and you will adopt the idea that I have all the time in the world. I can, you know, maintain a steady growing spiritual revival at a later date. As of now, I have better things to pursue. I have time to invest in my spiritual life later. But actually, this kind of patience appeals to you today. Today is the day to ask the Lord, how can I best maximize the time and resources and opportunities you give me to expand the kingdom? This last part, you know, zeroes it in. It makes it personal. I'm going to read it from, from Peter himself. Second uh, Peter 3.9 says, The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you. He waited for you. He was patient with you. He was willing to extend mercy and compassion until the day that you began to open your heart to his influence, until the day you decided to stop resisting and started yielding. Was not God patient with you? Extend that patient patience to others now. You know, we have this mentality that we need to fight and resist against. And it is experienced many times. It's a temptation to experience after we've learned truths, after we've experienced salvation, after we've accepted Jesus as our personal Savior. The, the adversary can cause our minds. To, he takes advantage of our natural tendencies towards selfishness. I remember in Bolivia well, when there were these um, strikes, you know, farmers, etc., truck drivers um, that would bring food in from the, from the field uh, to the cities. And there was a shortage, so shortage of rice, sometimes shortage of flour. And so you would go to this bakery to get uh, bread, and most bakeries were out of flour. So when you would find out through the grapevine that a certain um, bakery was not open for like two hours and sell bread until it was gone, people would line up. And sometimes those lines would go around the block, sometimes blocks people waiting and hoping to be able to get at least two loaves of bread. And I remember being in those lines the whole time thinking, man, I hope they don't run out. Man, I hope they don't run out. And you make the corner and you see that door at the entrance. Man, I hope they don't run out. Man, I hope they don't run out. And then you go through the door and you see that there are some steps going to a counter. Man, I hope they don't run out. And finally, you're like three people away from the counter and you're seeing the bags of bread get smaller and smaller. And I hope they don't run out. And boom, you're in front of the counter and boom, you place your order and ah, you walk out with fresh bread. And now I don't care if they don't 
run out. I don't care if they run out. I got my bread. I don't care if the person behind me um, doesn't get any bread. I got mine. Who cares if anyone behind me gets it? You and I can adopt that attitude of salvation that, well, at least I know, you know, and I, I accepted Jesus. I'm in. Now he can come. Now, come on, Jesus, hurry up, hurry up. Let's get this thing done and over with. Well, he was patient with you. And you are not the only human being he's trying to save. So, praise the Lord you have come to know him. Praise the Lord you have lead, uh, yielded to him. Praise the Lord you have opened your heart to his presence, dwelling in your life and changing and transforming you. But now is your turn to wait. Jesus waited for you. Will you be willing to extend that patience to others? and allow Jesus to work as patient and earnest and consistent in other people's lives? That is the patience of the saints. So we mentioned we had three lessons, right? The second one is pretty clear. There was war in heaven. But this war, the, the battlefield actually in heaven is the same battlefield here on earth. The battlefield, the war zone has always been the mind. The mind of the creatures God has created. Revelation 12, 9 says that the great dragon was cast down, that serpent of old called the devil and Satan, who deceived the whole world. But you know, it, it zeroes in with this dragon and he gets all these different symbols pointing to him as the originator of this thing called deception. Lies. Those things never existed in the universe, but it, be, it began with him. It all began, began with Satan and it began in his mind. Isaiah chapter 14 verse 13 says, You have said in your heart. That little sentence right there is loaded. Um, you have said in your heart implies inner dialogue. It, it presents the idea that inside the mind of Lucifer, a perfect holy being created to love God and love others um, with freedom. Because of this freedom, Lucifer began to allow these strange ideas, these strange words to begin to develop and blossom inside of his mind words that would lead him to believe a lie. You know, before he could deceive anyone uh, around him, before he could deceive any of the angels, before he could deceive any human being, Satan had to allow this deception to affect him. In other words, he was self-deceived. He had to allow for this self-deception to possess his mind. He himself came to believe the lie so that he could tell it and speak it with as if it was the truth to other people. He was deceived. He allowed himself to be deceived about who God was in his heart. And that's the epitome of self-deception. No one had to lie to Lucifer. No one had to put strange, subtle thoughts inside of him. This idea, These ideas of God, these wrong perceptions of God, mysteriously, for no reason whatsoever, except that Lucifer allowed these thoughts, these words, these ideas composed of words to develop inside of his heart. He, instead of rejecting them, instead of uh, casting them out, he embraced them. And he, sh he didn't have no reason whatsoever to do this. God was patient with Lucifer. All the evidences that appeal to intellect and reason were presented over and over and over, over a, pr a prolonged period of time for Lucifer, but to no avail. 
what was the issue? What was the, the, the provoking element that caused these words, these ideas to, to blossom inside of Lucifer? Self-exaltation. Lucifer indulged a desire for self-exaltation, to focus on himself, not just himself, but for others to draw attention to self. He coveted the honor and the power that only belonged to Christ. Christ was the only being visible, understandable, relatable um, to God the Father, and he manifested himself in a way that the angels could relate and understand. You know, I never saw this in the scriptures until I began to look closely as to what provoked Lucifer to go this, this route, and it was jealousy. He did not understand God's love. He did not understand that love desires to be understood and known. And God will do what is necessary so that other creatures, other beings, will understand and come to know and love. That is the foundation of love in freedom. In order for you to love freely, you have to know the person and be convinced this person is worthy, deserves all of my love. And God, the eternal, the almighty, the, the from everlasting to everlasting, how could that revelation, how could that God fit into a, cre a created being's mind? The Gospel of John alludes to this reality that no one has ever seen God. Only the only begotten, the only begotten Son is the only one that has seen God and declared Him or made Him known. And this happened not just to the human race, this also happened to the angelic host. The angelic host could not penetrate to see the, the glory and magnificence, the awesome magnificence of God. So God, being a God of love, wanting to be known by these creatures, uh, condescended himself to make himself visible and, and uh, uh, relatable through what they could understand. The Bible calls this um, condescension, this uh, condescension that took many eons ago, um, this being called Michael. In the same way that Christ became, that this person of the heart, Godhead, became Christ when he became God in the flesh, he was this visible manifestation to the angels. He was one of the covering cherubs, but he was not an angel. He was not, he, was, he manifested himself as an angel so that they could understand the character of God, but this was in verity God himself. And his name, Michael, means who is like God. We'll see that later in the book of Revelation, how, it, how that is significant. Many Christians miss this point. And they say, you know, that some of the Adventists, the, the accusations are wrong, that we make Jesus a created being. No. The Bible teaches that this, this being called Michael is not a created being. It was God manifested himself in a way that the angels could understand God, just in the same identical way that Jesus Christ became human, so that you and I could come to understand God by not just simply reading from the book, but seeing in the flesh. We'll touch more on that in just a little bit. But right now, this was the idea. Lucifer could not fathom a God that could humble himself so much to do this. He became jealous. He did not understand the relationship of Christ to the Father. And so when the councils, there were these councils that only the Father and the Son would partake of with the Holy Spirit, Lucifer was not made a part of those councils, of these plans. And because of that, he began to question, why him and not me? How can he be part of and I'm left out? Aren't I glorious? Aren't I brilliant? 
I, 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 am I not of you know this magnificent uh, nature? So he began to covet power and authority that only belonged to Christ. He allowed jealousy and pride to, to uh, control his thoughts, control his emotions, until eventually he became fully committed to rebel against God. For no reason, except that he did not understand. And when God tried to explain, when God tried to reveal the multiple evidences of his love, he had been created as the highest exalted uh, angel, that was not enough. Now there was discontent. Pride and self-exaltation had created a spirit of discontent in the mind of Lucifer. And this is the thoughts, the self-deception that entered his mind, that he, a creature, could become the creator. That he, the creature, could somehow become the provider and sustainer of life for the universe. Completely deluded self-lie. Self and this is how it began. The war in heaven began in the mind of one created being. One created being that allowed the thoughts of self-exaltation, of pride and jealousy to fully blossom in his heart. Our society looks at this and are left with their heads scratching. That stuff doesn't sound so bad. You know, jealousy, yeah, everybody's jealous. Pride, pride is not offensive to us. Self-exaltation, turn on the television, we love it. We, we, we reward people that exalt themselves and bring attention to themselves, be it through whatever talent they may exhibit. But in heaven, these, these attributes are completely contrary to the character of God and the atmosphere of heaven. They're just not compatible. This notion of self-exaltation led Lucifer to rebel. And now in his mind, just like we said, the, the self-deception had settled in. He was better than the Creator. He knew better than the Creator. And for long, a prolonged period of time, he subtly affected the minds. He took his distorted thoughts about God, used carefully selected words to speak, to speak these words into the minds of other angels, and these other angels began to see th see God the way Lucifer saw God. It's interesting, in Revelation chapter 12, verse 4, in the New American Standard, um, it says that his tail drew a third of the angels. Actually, the New King James says that his tail drew a third of the angels and threw them to the earth. If it, it just, I never had paid attention to that sequence. He first drew, brought close into sympathy with himself, and then cast them down, then led them to rebellion. He caused them to feel that, hey, I have your best interest in mind. Hey, I'm only saying, you know, this is what I see, and how come this is the way it is, and aren't you bright? Aren't, aren't, don't you know that you have your own self-possession? We're bright, we're intelligent, we can decide what is best for ourselves. We don't need someone at the top telling us what to do or what we ought to be. We are bright, intelligent beings. We can discern and define our destiny, our purpose, and existence. And subtly, he began to use flattery. Flattery. You know, you have to be careful when someone compliments you and over compliments you. They do not have your best interest. Flattery is a tool of Satan. When someone comes and begins to laud and applaud, you run the other way. I don't believe that there's one exception that I can think of when that is manifested. That is how Satan drew angels to himself. He flattered them. He made them feel more inflated and that, you know, the, the 
paint it, put them as high as possible, and then point out that God is not treating you with the, with the height and honor that you deserve. And that's how discontentment settled in the hearts of the angels themselves. And a third of them received these lies. You know, words are the medium through which ideas are placed in someone else's mind. Words are the medium through which ideas are placed in someone else's mind and someone else's ideas can get placed into your mind and they can open those doors through flattery and over complimenting you. There's one thing that is healthy affirmation, healthy spiritual biblical affirmation and that is not a tool of the devil. That is something that we can use to encourage one another to let each other know God has used you in, in a beautiful way. Continue being dependent on the Lord but flattery tells you you have done something when the reality is that you have not done anything. Any, anything and everything good that you and I can do is only by the grace of God. So through flattery and deception, he drew a third of the angels with him, infected their minds, and their minds are infected. They do not see God as a God of love. You know, the book of Revelation says that they were cast out. The angels that were that sided with, with Satan in Revelation 12, 9, when the great dragon was cast out, it says, and his angels were cast out with him. That is a painful statement. All the angels were created by God. They were God's angels. But in the book of Revelation, it says that some chose to be Satan's angels. They placed their allegiance on the side of Lucifer, and they became his angels. And there is a, a two sides of the same coin. When in Revelation, it says that they were cast out. In the book of Jude, in verse 6, it actually paints love, God's love. Jude verse 6 says, And the angels who did not keep their proper domain, but left their own abode. They chose not to keep. They chose to walk away. They chose to leave that which was theirs. And God had to painfully honor that choice. They were presented with the evidences. If, if you want to stay, you need to understand and receive the evidences of, of God as our creator that is a God of love. He does deserve our allegiance. What Lucifer is saying about God, his ideas about God are wrong. And these are the evidences that show that he is wrong. And there were multiple evidences. The angels in heaven had no reason to rebel at all. But as we said, words are the medium through which ideas are placed in someone else's mind. And there are individuals, there are entities out in this world controlled by the enemy that are using words to infiltrate and infect your mind. And if Satan can infect the mind of holy angels, he has not much of a difficult time infecting your mind and your mind and mine. We need to be cautious as to what words, what ideas we allow into our minds. Our, our minds are the battleground, just like it was in heaven. Though the Bible says there was war in heaven, that war in heaven started because there was a war inside the mind of a being called Lucifer. And that war of words, of ideas, infected other angels and now it came down to planet Earth. Um, one last closing thought on this second lesson that we gleaned from this week's lesson. If the battlefield is the mind, then, the word, then words are bullets. If the battlefield is the mind, then words are bullets. And I'm pretty sure you can capture the, the imagery that I'm trying to paint here. Now, in the, in the biblical times, in the times of the apostles, they would not have said, if the battlefield is the mind, words are bullets. They would have said, if the battlefield is the mind, words are arrows. And when I thought that, 
Uh, when that thought came to me, I, I immediately thought of Ephesians 6.16, where Paul admonishes us to first and foremost, above all things, to take up the shield of faith, so that through this shield of faith, we can extinguish and quench, put out all the flaming arrows of the evil ones. And I used to think these flaming arrows were simply just Satan throwing tr uh, trouble, temptations, distractions at me. No, no, no. Thoughts. Satan wants to affect your thoughts. So he'll use words. Words. If the battlefield is the mind, words are bullets. If the battlefield is the if the, if the battlefield is the mind, Satan will use flaming arrows of subtle words that will affect your perception and convictions of who God is. So we've covered quite a bit in this section, and this allows us now to transition to this last third part of the three lessons we we gained from this uh, week's lesson. If, if the, the words are the bullets, the arrows, how can we use the shield of faith to extinguish these flaming arrows? How does faith relate to the words Satan wants to put into our minds? When we come back for this last section, we will explore this question and more. So, the, the last, the third and last thing that we, we can glean, the lessons, at least that I personally gleaned from this week's lesson, is this. If Satan could deceive through spoken words, expressing his distorted ideas of who God is through spoken words, God would vindicate the truth of who he is through the living word. Satan would use the spoken word. God would use the living word. Revelation chapter 12, we're going to go back to this uh, chapter that we've been studying all week long, Revelation chapter 12 and verse 11, we read the following, And they overcame him, Satan, they being the saints, they overcame Satan because or through the blood of the Lamb and because of the word of their testimony. So here we have words being, being highlighted once again. So we have these two parallel statements. You and I overcome. We, I mean, we closed this last second section with, through the shield of faith, we can put out the fiery arrows, the fiery darts of the enemy, his words. And this overcoming by faith is done through two elements, the blood of the lamb and the word of our testimony. Now, before we begin to make the blood of Jesus to be silent, you need to understand in the Bible imagery, Bible often speaks often the, 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 the imagery of Bible is used. If you go to Genesis chapter 6, um, God tells Cain that the blood of his brother Abel was crying out to him from the ground. And the blood of the lamb speaks. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 24, it speaks of Jesus being the mediator between God and man and that the sprinkled blood speaks better things than that of Abel. The sprinkled blood of Christ at the cross speaks better things than that of Abel. Now, I just told you that in Genesis uh, chapter 4, actually, is when God says that the, the blood of Abel was crying out uh, in regards to what Cain had done. And what was the blood of Abel crying out for? Justice and vengeance. Justice and punishment. That is what the blood of Abel was crying out for justice and punishment and vengeance. But the blood of Christ, Paul tells us, also speaks. 
and the blood of Christ cries out for mercy and forgiveness. Abel's blood cried out for justice and vengeance, justice and punishment, but the blood of Christ cries for mercy and forgiveness. And God can do both. God can answer to the, the cries of Abel's blood, and God can answer to the blood of Christ that calls for mercy and forgiveness. In the book of uh, Romans, God says that God is both just and the justifier of those that come to him through faith in Jesus Christ. What does all of that mean? Is that the punishment that the blood of Abel demanded from Cain, Jesus paid at the cross. What Abel's blood demanded that this uh, unjust act, thou shalt not murder, the breaking of God's law, it demanded was death. Jesus would pay for that sin at the cross. And he would do that for every single sin of every single human being on planet earth. The blood of Jesus would speak of better things, not because of what the blood of uh, Abel was crying out for was unjust or evil or sinful. It was right. It was just. And so that God could fulfill and answer to the cries of those that blood, Jesus would die at the cross. But by Jesus dying on the cross, his blood could speak something better for you and me. In Luke chapter 23, verse 34, we read what the blood of Christ speaks, the words that are spoken through the blood of Christ. Luke 23, 34, Jesus says, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. The blood of Christ spoke, and it doesn't just didn't just speak better things than that of Abel. At the cross, the blood of Christ spoke about the love of God. Here was God in the flesh, fulfilling the just demands of the law by dying for things he was not responsible for. But he was willingly taking the place of the sinner so that the sinner would have the opportunity, the potential the door open for him to receive the gift of forgiveness and through forgiveness, eternal life. God was sacrificing himself completely to save individuals that did not love him, beings that were in open and complete hatred and rebellion against him. When the universe saw that, the blood of Christ spoke, vindicating the truth of who God is. So this is the truth of who God is. He is love. And the cross shows and reveals that beyond a shadow of a doubt. What is spoken by the, the blood of Christ is supernatural. It's something that is not simply thoughts. You know, this is not the gospel of salvation to just change the way you think. You cannot change the way we are bent to think. The distorted way in which we interpret what God does in our lives. In the same way that in heaven, once Satan fully gave in to his rebellious heart, rebellious sentiments, anything and everything God did to try to redeem him was misconstrued and misunderstood and misrepresented as cruelty, control freak, he's trying to hurt me. You know, it blew me away when I would see this in the Gospels with, with the, the demons himself, the fallen angels. In Mark chapter 5, verses 1 through 8, you can read that passage. Uh, Mark chapter 5, verses 1 through 8, I'm just going to tell you the story. It's a story of the disciples and the Jesus getting off of a boat in this town called Gennesaret. 
and a demon-possessed man who lived in the tombs, who was constantly cutting himself. And the reason he did this is because he was completely controlled by these fallen angels. They controlled his thoughts. They didn't control his hand. They didn't control his feet. They controlled his thoughts. They could put thoughts into his head and over years of him receiving, not resisting, not crying out for a power outside of himself to resist, resist these thoughts, they came to control his thoughts. And so he was at the bidding of these individuals. Demons don't come inside of you in the sense that they somehow now enter into your kidney or your lungs, or your heart. All it means is that their words, their thoughts are being continually communicated to your mind and you are unable to filter them out and, and silence them. You have granted them access to the most intimate part of your, your, your being, which is your mind, your thought. And that's the condition of this man. His thoughts were so influenced and controlled by these beings that he would cut himself, he would harm himself, and would do some horrible things that are not, I don't want to even go into. And when Jesus begins to tell these demons, stop, get out, stop infiltrating his thoughts, stop affecting this child of mine, this is how the angels respond to Jesus. Stop tormenting us. Have you come to torment us? So the question is, who is tormenting who? These, these beings called legion, because we are many, they said. These bullies are picking on one human being and causing his slow self-destruction through much suffering and through much anguish. They're causing this human being to degrade and debase himself terribly into darkness things that, you know, we cannot even fully mention of the things that he was doing. And they are doing that to him, and they're saying to Jesus, don't torment us. That is the deception, the hardening of the heart and the deception of sin. You attribute to God what you are yourself. You think God is the way you are, and he is not. That's why we need Christ. That's why we need to hear what the blood of Christ speaks. Father, forgive them. For they do not know what they do. And the Holy Spirit takes these words that are spoken in a living way through Christ and convicts you that this is a reality of who God is to you. And the thoughts are brought through supernatural intervention, a reviving, renewing, uh, a filling of an awareness, of a conviction. God's not the way I thought he was. And what I thought is love is nothing compared to what truly is love. I'm starting to get glimpses of what love is through what Christ has done for me. In John chapter 6, verse 53, Jesus shocked his disciples when he said, you have to eat my flesh and drink my blood. This is the only way for you to have life. Um, but later on in verse 63, Jesus clarifies what he meant. He wasn't speaking about literally eating his flesh and drinking his blood. He says, the words that I speak to you, they are spirit and they are life. You don't have to only listen to the words of the enemy. You, are, the human race, is the destiny. Our destiny is not only limited to hearing the lies of Lucifer, his words entering into our thoughts. Now we have someone else that speaks to us. Now we have God speaking to each of us through the Holy Spirit about Jesus, of His blood, the blood that speaks better things. 
And these words are life, your spirit, because they will reveal to you who Jesus is, who God is. And in doing so, your allegiance changes. That's the supernatural power that these words have. In the same way that the spoken words of Lucifer caused angels in heaven to turn from allegiance to God, in the same way that the spoken words of Lucifer caused Adam and Eve to turn from their allegiance to God, the spoken word of God through Jesus Christ, through his blood, provokes in us through the miraculous power of the grace of God for us to turn from our allegiance to Lucifer and Satan and darkness and sin and willingly choose to love God as our creator and our redeemer. Now I choose to turn from the darkness of Satan's lies to the light of the truth of who God is. This is the overcoming of Satan by the blood of the Lamb. The blood of the Lamb that speaks to me of better things, of a better God that I could have ever imagined on my own, but now is revealed to me through Jesus. Now, this overcoming has an effect on me. I am set free from the lies of the enemy. But the Bible doesn't say that we only overcome by the blood of the Lamb. There's there's a two-part uh, component to this, is we overcome by the blood of the Lamb that speaks better things, but also by the word of our testimony. Acts chapter 26, verses 17 through 18 says, this is Paul speaking, I will deliver, this is what Jesus told Paul, I will deliver you from the Jewish people, as well as from the Gentiles to whom I now send you, to open their eyes in order to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Loaded verse. All um, I'm quoting this verse is to show that, that consistent pattern. Paul, who, who was Saul, misunderstood who God was and was acting contrary to God, using force to lead people to be, be faithful to God. And God will never use that until uh, Saul meets Jesus on the road to Damascus and his life is changed forever. And he could speak about the power of the blood of Christ, how it changed him, how it revealed the truth of who God was. But it didn't stop there. Now it was, it was the word of Saul. The blood of Christ speaks to me personally, and the blood of Christ speaks through me to other people personally. It speaks to me first, but then it speaks through me so that others may hear about the word of my testimony of what the blood of Jesus has done in my life. And that is when Jesus tells Paul, you will open their eyes. Our eyes are blind to who God is. God has been acting in our lives from day one and all he means to do for us is save us, redeem us from the darkness of our destiny of death. But we misunderstand everything he does in our lives. And plus, to boot, we live in a world that is broken by sin in which painful things happen to innocent people. And so Satan points at that and says, see, this is the evidence why you ought to not trust God, why you ought to even preferably reject any idea of God, become an atheist, I don't care, or be become anything else except one that knows who truly God is and that from the heart you have a love relationship with him. Satan detests that. But here's Paul being empowered to open the eyes of these Gentile individuals, people steeped in paganism, and turn them from the darkness to light. Darkness of who God is 
into the light of who God is in the face of Jesus Christ, like 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 6-9 through 9 says. And from the power of Satan, the power of his deceptions, to the truth of God, so that we may receive forgiveness, because now we hear what the blood of the Lamb speaks, what the blood of Jesus speaks. It speaks better things than the blood of Abel. The blood of Jesus now speaks through me, through the word of my testimony. The blood of Christ speaks to my conscience through the uh, written word, through the written scriptures, and it transforms me, it enlightens me to, as to who God is. But once I experience conversion, the blood of Christ not just speaks to me, but now it will speak through me. My testimony of this Jesus will be of a Jesus, of a God who loved me and washed me from my sins in his own blood. That's Revelation chapter 1, verse 5. You know, as a closing thought in John chapter 5, verses 39 through 40, Jesus made this appeal to individuals that he found more difficult to save than the Gentiles. The, his own people. His own people that had the scriptures. Jesus would say to them, you search the scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life. You don't realize that they testify of me. The, the word speaks, but you plug your ears because these words reveal a person, not information, not steps, not self-help. It's not just, like I said earlier, just changing your thoughts. It is a miracle. A miracle of beginning to understand the, the heart of God and the, the beautiful experience of beginning to see that the heart of God is being reproduced inside of me in that before I could only exhibit pride, jealousy, and covetousness, now I see that through the power of the Holy Spirit, I can begin to love. I can begin to love God the way He loves me, and I can begin to love others the way Jesus loved me. The blood of Christ doesn't want to just speak to you, it wants to speak through you. There's a word perishing. There's a world perishing in the darkness, being controlled by the power of Satan. And you who have been transformed by the blood of the Lamb, Jesus doesn't want to just continue speaking to you. Jesus wants to speak through you. This is Pastor Ariel, and I hope you were blessed with today's episode of Devotional. It is my prayer this resource will inspire you to spend personal time studying God's Word, including using the study tool of our Sabbath School Quarterly. If you haven't yet, please subscribe to this podcast. This way, you will be notified each time a new episode is published. And don't forget to scroll down on the show's description and click on the links for all the free resources to get the best experience out of this podcast. Also, please remember to share with your friends through social media, be it Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or the one you use regularly. This way, they can also be blessed with this resource. Lastly, please consider becoming a financial supporter of this podcast. It would be much appreciated. 
This is Pastor Ariel inviting you to study the Bible with me again on our next episode of Devotional. Devotional.